Well, let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And this morning we are closing this chapter in our study. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, all the way through the end. Please now listen to the reading of God's word. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. An ancient philosopher once said, and I quote, Not to know what happened before you were born is to remain forever a child, end quote. Deep words, indeed. His point was simply to explain that ignorance of the past can have devastating consequences for the present and for the future. The human life is lived within a stream that constantly connects the past, the present, and the future. When people, or better yet, when societies forget their past, when societies forget their history, it is almost guaranteed that they will fail to understand their present or how to move into the future. And this is demonstrably true. Those who are willing to act like children and destroy the fabric of any society are normally the ones who are ignorant of or choose to ignore the past. They lose sight of what happened before they were born. Immature people are normally rootless, rootless. They have no connection to the past or they have forgotten it. I think what we have here, especially in the man speaking the words we just read in Acts chapter three, namely Peter is a good illustration of this principle. Just think about it with me. Peter's most childish moments, his most immature reactions were the outflow of forgetting what was spoken in the past. Forgetting past prophecies was the root of his Satan-inspired comment in which he wanted to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Forgetting past prophecies was the root of his cowardliness when faced with the statement, oh, you are one of his disciples. His childish response and subsequent lament were both born out of his momentary detachment from what had been prophesied in the past concerning the Messiah. The same is true of Peter's return to his former life as a fisherman. You will remember that the disciples went through a time of deep, deep discouragement 
after seeing their master and Lord dying on a cross. For a few days, they thought it was over. So they went back to their former trades. Why? They failed to remember and understand the prophetic words they had read in the scriptures and had heard from the mouth of Jesus in the past. In other words, they were unable to allow the ancient words to inform their present actions. Thankfully, Peter did become mature. Eventually, Peter grew up. And what we see in Acts is a maturing man. And his maturity, brothers and sisters, was developing as his ability to connect the past and the present and future was also maturing. What we see here in Acts 3 is a man who now understands that the words of prophecy spoken in past generations throughout the Old Testament regarding the Christ were the lenses through which he needed to understand his present. Brothers and sisters, without going any further, let me just state very clearly that we can only find stability and maturity as Christians living in this modern world by remembering and understanding these ancient words. It is only as we gain greater understanding of the words spoken in the past that we are able to navigate the circumstances occurring in our present. There is no such thing as a mature Christian, as a maturing Christian, who is not at the same time a remembering Christian. We must realize that our ability to live faithfully in the present is always connected to our ability to understand accurately the words spoken in the past. The Peter of Acts chapter 3 is a wonderful example of this reality. Consider this, his newfound boldness is the direct outflow of this. He was convinced ancient prophecy had been fulfilled. Now, Peter is unstoppable. He's unstoppable before when his understanding of ancient prophecy was still very weak. A little girl was enough to intimidate the man. Now, with a more mature understanding of ancient prophecy, a big crowd is not enough to stop him. And as we will see next week, not even persecution will stop him. Peter understood himself as a man living in a stream of prophetic power. Brothers and sisters, so should we. So should we. And I will say that more about that at the end. Peter's very eyes were seeing ancient words coming to pass in actual history. So as Peter continues to explain the healing of the crippled man, his thoughts once again go into the past, into prophecy. His main desire is to convey the truth, convey the truth that it is because of Jesus that this crippled man is now well. But in order to understand Jesus, you need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to ancient prophecy. And the first thing he does, if you're following the notes, is to give the specific substance of the prophecy. The specific substance of the prophecy. Verses 22 and 23. Consider what he says. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That prophecy was originally given in, by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 19. And there are essentially four elements that make up this, the substance of the prophecy. Letter A, it was about God doing something new. It was about God doing something new. God will raise up. Two things to consider. First, God's grace. God's grace. We must never forget that everything good comes from God. Everything of eternal value is God's doing. God is always the one who initiates. For instance, think of all the covenants in the Old Testament. The covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David. All of them were initiated by God. And this, my friends, is the unique feature, the core characteristic of grace. Grace is always given, never merited. Grace is always a condescension on God's part. Grace is always God looking down on us with favor, a favor we have not earned or deserved. God will raise up a prophet. It is his doing. Notice second with me, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Consider what Moses did not say. It's important to, to know what he did not say. He did not say, God will try to raise up a prophet. Or God will attempt to raise up a prophet. Or God will do his absolute best to raise up a prophet. Or God hopes to be able to raise up a prophet. Or if history goes as planned, God will raise up a prophet. I love how when Moses spoke these words originally, there was not even a hint of doubt. So I use the word implied sovereignty because it is not mentioned, but it is clear in the words themselves. God will raise up a prophet. Do you understand the implications of those few words? Only, only a sovereign God, meaning only a God who is in control of all things, including human history, down to the very conception of every single human being can make a promise like this. He brought it to pass how and when he wanted. Thus, this prophecy was about God's demonstrating his grace and displaying his power. Letter B, it was about a man fulfilling a Moses-like role. A Moses-like role. The Bible says God will raise up a prophet like Moses. Like Moses. This comparison is quite, quite important. Extremely important, in fact. Consider with me for a moment who Moses was. He was a savior-like figure whom God used to reveal himself to his people. Amen? Amen. We agree. Wonderful. Notice two important aspects of Moses' ministry. Salvation and revelation. It was under Moses that the people of Israel were saved from Egypt. He led them in the Exodus. 
Additionally, it was under the ministry of Moses that God revealed his law to them as well at Sinai. Now consider with me the person of Jesus. He is not just a savior-like figure. He is the savior of the world. Thus, Jesus, listen to this, leads his people in a new and better exodus. Moses freed the God's people from Egypt. Jesus free us from sin and hell. He is the savior of the world. But not only is he the savior who leads us in a new and better exodus, he is also the one who reveals the father in a way Moses never could. How? Well, think about this. Moses was not Emmanuel. Moses was not God with us. Jesus is. Even though through Moses came true knowledge of God, Moses never could have said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. In fact, it would have been utterly blasphemous for Moses to say those words, but Jesus said those words about himself. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Therefore, Jesus fulfills the role of a prophet, right? Prophets in the Old Testament were given the task of receiving and disseminating the knowledge of God given to them by the Spirit. They revealed God's will to God's people. Jesus, however, is not only a prophet, but he's the true and better prophet for he himself is God in the flesh and no one comes or knows the father except through him. Let us see. It was about a message. It was about a message. Notice how it says, listen to him. Continuing with the prophetic office of Jesus, Peter reminds his audience, the men of Israel, that this prophet whom God would raise was also going to bring a spoken message, a spoken message. Now, the greatest confirmation of this came at the Mount of Transfiguration. You will remember that when Jesus was transfigured, who showed up? Moses and Elijah. They appear next to him. And they started having a conversation with the Lord, at which point Peter, of course, threw in his suggestion about making three tents. Thankfully, while Peter was talking, God himself interrupted and said these powerful words about Jesus. Matthew 17, verse 5, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he said this, listen to him. Why listen to him? Listen to him because he said what he says is what you need to hear in order to be reconciled to God. And letter D, it was about life and death. This prophecy was about life and death. Notice how both Moses and Peter said, whoever does not listen to him shall be what? Destroyed. In other words, your life will depend on this prophet. And of course, Jesus then later on uses the analogy about himself when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. What is the picture being conveyed? It is a picture of life and death. A branch disconnected from the vine 
from the source of nutrients is dead. Likewise, a person separated from Jesus, the source of life, can have no life. Apart from Jesus, there is no spiritual life. He is the life source for all of humanity. If you are not in Jesus through faith in his name, you are dead. You are lifeless, like a branch cut off from the tree. So this was the specific substance of the prophecy of Moses. Now, after quoting him in detail, in verse 24, Peter now proceeds to explain the pervasive nature of the prophecy. In verse 24, the pervasive nature of the prophecy. Consider what it says, verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. The point Peter makes here is simple, yet very, very critical. You cannot miss this. And it is follows, as follows. The gospel never was an afterthought in the Old Testament. The gospel never was an afterthought in the Old Testament. The theme of this coming prophet raised up by God, like Moses, who speaks truth and in whom salvation is found, was at the very heart of the ministry of all the Old Testament prophets. Turn in your Bibles quickly to 1 Peter 1. You know this verse, but it's a good reminder. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look long to look. So notice how pervasive this prophecy is in the eyes of Peter. He basically gives a summary of the entire Old Testament. How? By mentioning three main characters, Moses, Samuel, and later on, Abraham. Notice how each of these men represents a key era of Jewish history. Abraham represents the beginning stages of the Jewish nation. It was through Abraham that God initiated his plan of redemption in human history. Moses, of course, is the one through whom God established Abraham's big family into a nation with laws and regulations that set them apart from the rest of the nations of the world. And then what about Samuel? Well, this is the prophet God used to call Israel's first God-appointed king, David. Samuel ministered during the early stages of Israel's monarchy. Clearly, this was a critical time in the history of the Jewish nation. Samuel is very significant. As several biblical scholars have noted, Samuel is both the last of the judges, the successor of Eli the priest, and he is at the forefront of the prophetic movement that is so pronounced during the monarchical period. Hence, Peter's use of Samuel as a type of landmark. He sees Samuel as a sort of summary of the entire prophetic ministry that started with him and was carried out by many others later on. Peter's point is very, very strong. He's saying that all of them had one common message. What was that message? 
Notice what he says in verse 24. They all proclaimed these days, says Peter. When taken all together, this is quite incredible. Listen to this. Abraham, Moses, Samuel, and all the ones that came after them, they all lived in different times and periods and fulfilled different roles. True. But they were all moving forward in the same direction. They were all speaking about these days, meaning the days of the Messiah. This is what I mean by using the word pervasive to describe the nature of this prophecy. The word pervasive means prevalent. It means spreading everywhere. And that's what this prophecy was. And this is Peter's point. This prophecy was central to the Old Testament. It was everywhere. Maybe you missed it, says Peter, but the prophecy about the coming prophet was the theme running through our Hebrew scriptures. That prophets is the hinge that holds everything in place. It was all about this one man who would come from our people, Peter says. In light of this reality, here's a practical lesson for studying the Bible and likely the most important lesson in hermeneutics. When we study the scriptures, we must look for Jesus. When we study the scriptures, we must look for Jesus. I hate to break it to you, but you are not the central character of the Bible. The Bible is not about you. It's about Christ. Yes, even in the Old Testament, he is the heart of it all. Not Israel. Not Israel. Undoubtedly, Israel did play a crucial role in the history of redemption. And this by divine design. No question about that. But we must be careful not to overemphasize Israel at the expense of Jesus. After all, Israel, the nation, was established as a nation in order to prepare the way of the Lord. Israel was not the main character of the Old Testament. Jesus is. He holds the entire Bible together. It is Christ. Now, the centrality of Jesus is also confirmed by Peter's next point, which is found in verse 25. After considering the pervasive nature of the prophecy, he now reminds uh, these men of Israel of something they would have already known very, very well. What is that? The global, global design of the prophecy. The global design of the prophecy. Verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter has quoted from Moses and has mentioned Samuel. Now he talks about the patriarch per excellence, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Why does he do that? He does that for a very specific purpose, to remind the Jewish men that from the very beginning, God meant to bless them, to bless them. And not only them, but the whole world. Listen, brothers and sisters, the blessings of the covenant with Abraham, which was the covenant of circumcision by which God set the people of Israel apart from the other nations. The blessing of that covenant was never meant to remain confined to Israel alone. The purpose was always worldwide. To Abraham, God clearly said, 
in your offspring shall some of the families of the earth be blessed. He didn't say that all the families of the earth shall be blessed in your Bibles. Please turn to Galatians chapter three, Galatians chapter three. This is quite important to understanding to our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. I want us to read several verses out of this chapter. First, consider with me Galatians three verse eight. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify who the Gentiles by faith preached. Notice this, the gospel preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's remarkable. Paul called this the gospel. How could Paul refer to the covenant made with Abraham as gospel? Isn't that old Testament stuff? Isn't the old Testament all about law and how can he call the gospel? Well, he explains it in verses 13 and 14, same chapter. 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is the Abrahamic blessing? The promised spirit through faith who makes that promise possible for the whole world the one who is now exalted at the right hand of the father. Paul calls it gospel because clearly its fulfillment is in Christ, which is strongly confirmed in verse 16. Read it with me. I mean, not out loud, but follow the reading. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. The promise was made to Christ through Abraham, Christ. Listen to this through Abraham, Christ was promised the nations through Abraham. Christ was promised the nations. In other words, the one who would impart this global blessing was not Abraham, but rather the offspring of Abraham, namely Christ. We already saw that when Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God, he received the promised Holy Spirit. And now as the one with the authority to send the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself in the spirit, he goes into all the world. He calls people to himself and circumcises their heart, thus setting them apart as his own people. And that people is called the church. Hence the great commission in which Jesus said, go and make disciples of the surrounding nations. I always say stuff like that to wake you up. No, no, no. That's not what he said. All the nations. Now the question is, how can this small group of men, how many people, how many people were there when Jesus gave the great commission? A handful. Mostly for the most part, uneducated men. And Jesus has the audacity, the audacity to tell them this handful of men, go and get me the nations. Go and get me the nations. They're mine. How can this be? Well, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, 
He answers, how? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Yes. But this is not surprise either. Remember what God showed Abraham? If you don't, I'm going to tell you. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Who are the descendants of Abraham? According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So how many descendants does Abraham have? More than we can number. And the number keeps growing all over the world. All over the world. Brothers and sisters, please be encouraged this morning. That number has never stopped growing. Consider this. Every time we have new members added to our church or people being baptized or new churches started, all these things serve as reminders that in Christ and by the spirit, God has fulfilled and is fulfilling the Abrahamic promise to this very day. To this very day, God has been faithful. Look around you. Literally. Look around you. Behold, the sons and daughters of Abraham. Behold, the sons and daughters of Abraham. Some of us become jealous of the apostles sometimes because we argue in our heads how amazing it would have been for us to be alive during that time. We do that sometimes. It it would have been cool to see those miracles. And hear the apostles. And I agree. But brothers and sisters, consider how amazing it is for us to witness in our own history the ongoing fulfillment of the ancient promise given to Abraham. And all because Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God and the Spirit has come. So Peter encourages these men of Israel in Acts chapter 3 by telling them to consider this wonderful truth. If God means to bless the families of, in all the earth, how much more does he want to bless you, men of Israel? Repent and turn back, as he told him in verse 19, because God wants to bless you. Yes, even you who killed the Son of God. So now Peter concludes his sermon in the heart of it all once again. And this is our second to last point. He points to the historical fulfillment of the prophecy the historical fulfillment of the prophecy. First part of verse 26. Remember what he says in verse 26 is the continuation of the Abrahamic blessing. God having raised up his servant. I don't believe Peter is speaking about the resurrection in verse 26. Rather, I believe he's speaking about the coming of Jesus into the world in human flesh. God raised up Jesus in the sense that God brought him into human existence existence through the lineage of David and from the people of Israel. And so it was precisely from among the brothers, meaning from within Israel itself, that the Messiah came. Jesus came from the Jews. He appeared in our world by means of the Jewish nation. But notice how Peter says it. 
He refers to Jesus as the very conclusion, the climax of Old Testament prophecy. Whether you think of Abraham, whether you think of Moses or Samuel or any of the prophets, Jesus is the one all of them were pointing to. Hence the words we read in John 6 verse 14. Do you remember that story? It's fascinating. After Jesus multiplied bread and the fish and fed thousands of people, how did the people respond? I'm going to read it to you. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They wanted to make him king. They recognized Jesus as the prophet Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in fact, he was. And why did he come into the world? Here's our last point. The gracious purpose of the prophecy. And we will finish with this. I only have about an hour left. <laughs> That's a nervous laugh. After <laughs> Verse 26. God, having raised up his prophet, sent him to you first. Who, who's the you? Jewish nation. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Notice how this blessing is for all the nations. But it started with the Jewish nation nation. God sent his son to the Jews first. He came to save the house of Israel first, then into all the nations. But notice also the individual element. Jesus came to turn every one of you individually from what? A word that we don't like very much. Wickedness. Wickedness. Yes, the blessing goes into all the world, but you need to acknowledge your wickedness at the individual level. And here's precisely where the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of darkness. Is it not? Please listen to me carefully in what I'm about to say. Don't miss this. The message being preached by the world, the world's gospel, the world's good news is this. Happiness and fulfillment are found in your wickedness, in rebellion against God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says happiness and fulfillment are found away from your wickedness in obedience to God. Please note, give full attention to the undeniable fact that Jesus came into this world not to save us in our wickedness, but to turn us away from it. The gospel of the world and the gospel of Christ are forever and irreparably at odds with each other. They will never be joined together. They will never coexist. Don't expect the world to welcome your gospel. So as someone said, it comes down to this. Christ or chaos? Christ or chaos? Let me apply this. Christ or chaos in your own individual life? Christ or chaos in your family? Christ or chaos in society? And in the rest of the world? 
Let me say this, only Christ brings true freedom. So as we consider our engagement with the world, by bringing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, holiness must begin with us. Because as we make a defense for the hope that is in us, 1 Peter 3.15, in that very hope, we purify ourselves, 1 John 3.3. 3. So as we bring this to a close, please consider with me the glory of our salvation. Jesus freed us from our wickedness. I mentioned in my introduction that we too live within the stream of prophetic power. And this is undeniable. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are seeking to live your life, all of your life in submission to his lordship, then we cannot deny that the stream of prophetic power is still going forth into all the world. The ancient prophecy concerning the Messiah, the same prophecy Peter understood and apply on that day is the reason why you and I are here this morning. God sent Jesus into the world to free people from their wickedness. So let me ask you a simple question. If you're a Christian, can you see how this is increasingly true in your life? Are you able to discern how the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, not only has freed you from your wickedness in a legal and judicial sense through justification, but how he's also freeing you from the power of wickedness in a practical sense through sanctification. I want to encourage you this morning in this way. Take inventory of your life. Identify the many ways in which you are no longer what you used to be. And give thanks to Jesus Christ for freeing you from your wickedness. Consider the increase of Christ's government in your own life. Oh, my friend, marvel at this glorious truth. Jesus, the one who died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead and is now exalted at the right hand of God. He is leading you through a new and better exodus because he's a better Moses. By his spirit, the one he received during his exaltation. Jesus, listen, is defeating all your enemies. Everything that stands in the way of your sanctification. Speaking of the Exodus, you know what the old self is? You know, we have an old self. You know what the old self is? The old self is like Pharaoh during the Exodus. I love to think of the old self as Pharaoh during the Exodus, utterly and totally defeated, but very stubborn. That's it. Utterly and totally defeated, but very, very stubborn. Eventually, Pharaoh did die along with all his pride. But during the Exodus, he opposed God and his plans for his people. But from the beginning, he knew himself to be no challenge for God. Likewise, the old self in us is utterly defeated, but very stubborn. He opposes God's plans in us, but he knows he's defeated. And one day he will be no more. So how do we fight the good fight of the faith? First, we do so by calling to mind the fact that we no longer live in Egypt. As it were, we are on our way to the promised land. 
we are free in Christ. You see, the main sin of the Israelites was that even in their freedom, they wanted to live like slaves. And so they didn't want the manna from heaven. They wanted the meat from Egypt. The problem with Israel was not that they were still slaves, but failure to live in freedom. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I have an indicative for you. Not, not, a, not an imperative, an indicative. If you're a Christian, you are not a slave to your sin. You're not a slave to your sin. My brother and my sister, Jesus, the better Moses, came to deliver you from your wickedness. Let me ask you, was he successful? Was Jesus successful in giving us freedom from our wickedness? Yes, you are not a slave to your sin. And Jesus came to deliver you from your wickedness and he's still leading you away from it. Your savior, Jesus has already come. He lived, he died, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. All of which means that the kingdom of sin and darkness has no hold on you any longer. So as you fight Pharaoh, remember that he is already defeated. You have been set free in Christ, your deliverer. Live accordingly. Second, and I finish with this, we submit to Jesus. When both Moses and Peter said about Jesus, listen to him, which is later confirmed by the very voice of God, that listening to Jesus is more than just giving him your attention. The listening is a reference to obedience, submission. So in an ultimate sense, that ancient prophecy is about authority. The authority of the prophet whom God raised Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, I ask you, are you listening to him? In a very practical sense, listening to Jesus, listen to this, listening to Jesus means being free from autonomous thinking and living. You don't live for yourself anymore. You don't make up the rules anymore. Your thoughts and your life are under his authority. In a practical sense, listening to Jesus means we must conform all of our lives to his universal authority. So listening to Jesus means he tells you how you must think of human sexuality. You're not autonomous. You and I, we don't have the right to determine how we think of human sexuality. Men, you don't get to decide how you look at a woman and how you think of women. You don't get to decide that. So if you're looking at women with lustful intent, you must repent because Christ is your Lord. He tells you how you must think of women. Suffice it to say, if you're looking at porn, you have to stop because you have a Lord. You have a Lord that has all authority in heaven and on earth, includes your life, and he tells you, don't do that. I'm going to tell you how you must think of women. He determines how we think of human sexuality. He determines how we must think of entertainment. He, he determines how we think of politics. Woo, that's a big one. 
But I thought Christ and the Christian life was all about what we do within these walls. Everything else is outside of his, no, no, no. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He calls the shots. He determines how you think of politics, how you vote. That is his prerogative. He's king. I'm not making this up. He's king. It means something. It means something. You don't have freedom to think however you want about everything in life. No, if you're a Christian, he is Lord. That means something. Family, how you think of family, how you think of education, how you think of work, how you think of trials, how you think of suffering. Everything is determined by the Lord Jesus. To listen to Jesus means he calls the shots in every single area of your life. And the Christian life is about finding out what that means. So apart from Christ, wickedness permeated everything in us. Now that Christ has come to turn us from our wickedness, do not compartmentalize your life and pretend like some areas of your life don't belong to Christ. Do you realize that we don't even have the right to suffer independent from Christ? Because he is the one who gives meaning to our suffering and he determines how we should suffer to his glory. Everything about you, everything about me belongs to him. No corner of your life is free from the authority of Jesus. So now you go home and you learn what that means. And for some of us in this room, that means we need to repent. We need to repent. And if you're not a believer this morning, repent today. Repent of your sins and receive the goodness of Christ, the one who died on the cross to give you the hope of eternal life. Died for your sins and then rose again. He died for sinners and rose again to secure an eternal life. So you must believe in him today. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder of the fact that the ancient prophecy has come to pass. And if nothing else, Lord, help us to understand that apart from Christ, life has no meaning. Help us, Lord, to repent. Help us to consider the weight of our sins, but also the greatness of our salvation. For we do indeed serve a better Moses, who is leading his people through a better exodus. And we are headed for the promised land. This is your world, Lord. And we are yours. Help us to understand what this means. In Jesus' name, amen.